Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing the four-hour work week by Timothy Ferris. Escape the nine to five, live anywhere, and join the new rich. Tim Ferris, popular man. He's got a very popular podcast. Uh, this was his first of his books. And we did it a long, long, long time ago at the start of the podcast, but it's time to revisit it. Absolutely. It was a bit of a sinker, that original episode. It was awful. So, we really need to redo it. So, what the book is, it's all about original thinking and living on your own terms. So, if you think about when you grow up, especially when you go through high school and maybe university, you presented mainly two options. Option number one is you work your ass off until you retire safely. Option two is work your ass off building a business and in that case, you're working 80 hours a week. This book presents option C, which is what this book is all about by Tim Ferriss and it's all about lifestyle design. He says that why should we work so hard in the first place either for a job or building a company and think that there's a, a pot of gold at the end, whether you sell your company or you retire with a, with a big package at the end. He says that rather than just you know working for 40, 50 years and then retire one day for the next 20 years, he says that instead of doing that, we should try and enjoy our time now and live life on our own terms. And he says that you know planning for retirement is stupid. There's many flaws with retirement. So, he says it's almost like spreading out that 20 years of retirement over your working career. Man, many people living under that first, one of those first assumptions that we stated was that you know the nine to five grind? Tim Ferriss is saying is actually a, a big lie. There's no pot of gold coming at the end now more than ever with all these low interest rates and the baby boomers all retiring at once. There's no real pot of gold coming, so there's actually no point devoting your whole life to something uh, like a nine to five if it's what's making you miserable. Yeah, and now if you if you read the title of this book and the subtitle and you look at the cover, which is a dude chilling on his hammock on the palm trees on the beach, uh, you might think that this book is all just about, you know, quit your job and go work from the beach with your laptop and it's not really like that. That's probably the stigma that's been attached to it. But he says really it's not that you want a million dollars. You don't want to be rich and just have a lot of money. He says that what people really want is what a million dollars could bring you and that's the the freedom, the ability to make decisions, the choices, having the experiences that a millionaire you think would have. So really what it's about is not, you know, quit your job and work from the beach. It's actually about setting up your life and the way you work in order to achieve some of those things that we want out of life. Because mm, a lot of people just say, you know, if only I had $10 million, right? You know, I'd be traveling, I'd be living on the beach, I'd be hanging out. And what this book says is you can actually have all those things you'd have if you had the $10 million right now without the $10 million in the first place. So, it's a whole different paradigm of looking at the world and it's a, in a really effective way and it can really slap people up and change the, the direction they go. So, this book teaches us to see different options and opportunities that anybody following the two traditional courses that we laid out probably doesn't either either doesn't see or doesn't take advantage of. And the book's laid out in four sections, definition, elimination, automation, and liberation. So the first section, D for definition, it's all about setting up, you know, what's the what is this new way of, of living or working all about? What he's going to recommend in all these steps might seem impossible or even offensive to some of your common sense, but now you get to test the concept as an exercise in lateral thinking, right? So if you actually open your mind up to some of these new ways of looking at the world, he says you're going to see how deep the rabbit hole goes and you're never going to look back to the old way of living. I love it. And so, he's got two different types of people here. He calls uh, one group of people is the deferrers 
and one group of people is the term he introduces the new rich. So, the deferrers are those living on the deferred life plan, which is saying, look, work really hard now, defer retirement to the end of your working life and you can retire later. Whereas he's saying the new rich isn't the ones who are deferring it. They spread their retirement out throughout their working career. In fact, they might not even retire at all. So that's it. That's the, the currency of the new rich. It's this idea of having time and mobility because life doesn't have to be so bloody damn hard where you're trading in all your time now for this pot of gold that's coming down at the end. And that's what most people convince themselves, the nine-to-five drudgery in exchange for relaxing weekends and keep it short or get five vacations. So what what thing has come down the track that actually justifies living the best years of your life, hoping for happiness in the last years of your life? Why don't you just have that right now? Yeah, it sounds uh, it does sound almost impossible, but he presents the ways that we can do it. And say a deferrer's plan would be to retire as early and young as possible. But the new riches plan is to distribute these recovery periods as you know mini retirements and different adventures throughout your working career on a regular basis and realizing that you know inactivity is not the goal. You don't want to stop working forever. You just want to have a few breaks and refreshes as you go. The deferrers look to buy all the things that you want to have and the new rich look at things like doing all the things you want to do and be the things you want to be. Mm, very different approach. And the deferrer is looking for that big payday where they get to CEO one day with a big package or they sell their business or they IPO, whereas the new rich is looking for the freedom from doing what they dislike and never having to revert to work for work's sake. So this new rich is obviously the, the one you want to be if you're reading this book. And the paradigm that the new rich look at money is completely different as well. And I think this is fantastic. He says, money is multiplied in practical value by the amount of Ws you control in your life. Yeah, so it's not the amount of money you have, but what you can do with it. So if you've got control over what you do, when you do it, where you do it, and who you do it with, that's going to be a lot better than just having a big big pot of gold retiring at the end when you perhaps don't have control over those four Ws. So the blind quest for cash is actually a fool's errand. If you're just trying to make 150 grand a year in itself and that's the only goal without paying attention to the other four Ws, you're a bloody fool because he says you can charter private planes over Buenos Aires, have the best wines of the world in between world-class ski runs and live like a king by an infinity pool at a private villa because when you play with the other Ws, you can start having these things and having that millionaire lifestyle, right? with not just having worrying about the absolute income. So being financially rich and having the ability to live like a millionaire are fundamentally two different things. Mm, definitely, man. And you know, using this criterion, you might look at, you know, somebody who's working 80 hours a week, 51 weeks of the year and making $500,000 a year. Obviously that big it's a big pay packet, but when you contrast that to someone who's maybe only working only earning $40,000 a year but they're only working 10 hours a week and they get three months of, of, uh, of break each year. You, there are things that you need to start considering, those four Ws. It's not just the dollar amount itself, but what other Ws you control that can multiply the impact of that money and that enjoyment. Mm, it's looking at it as, as lifestyle output. So the arrangement of the first person gets a lot less money, but the lifestyle output is through the roof compared to the person who gets 500K a year but only one week off. So he's got a few examples of, of the new rich here. So it might be an employee who's, you know, it's, you don't have to quit your job and work on the beach. You still might be employed by a company, but you've arranged that nine days a fortnight, you're working remotely. Or it could be the business owner who doesn't have a big team, but they've automated a lot of the work. So they don't actually have to do a lot of the work themselves. 
or it could be a student who you know starts some kind of online business and they get a nice small source of income every month which allows them to go and work full-time as an animal rights lobbyist. So, the options are limitless but he says that each of these different paths begins with the same thing and that's replacing all of these built-in assumptions that we've all adopted. That's it. There's a, there's a whole bunch of assumptions that are really counterproductive that we've picked up along the way of our lives and the first one is a really big one. It's all about retirement. We need to see retirement as worst-case scenario insurance. The whole idea of retirement as a goal for final redemption, you know, at the end of the road when you get in that pot of gold is flawed for a bunch of reasons. First, it's predicated on the assumption you dislike what you're doing during the most physically capable years of your life. So, if you're trading your 25 to 65 years just so you enjoy your 65 to 80, I mean, that's all pointless because you're most physically capable in the first part. So, shift your retirement to the front so you can actually enjoy what you're doing in the moment when you're most physically capable. The other assumption, most people will never be able to retire in the first place. So, the math actually doesn't add up as painful as that sounds. Uh, The life expectancy of us is going forward more and more forward and with things like how the world economy is run there is a good chance that you actually might not be able to save enough to to keep you going until you actually cark it and then if you can actually get to the the math to make that add up it probably means you're an ambitious working machine so if that's the case once you actually get to retirement you think fuck i'm bored i want to get back to work so in each case retirement isn't a good idea <laughs> yeah exactly that's so that's one thing that flies in the face of the status quo, obviously the status quo being work for a long time and then retire. A few other things that fly in the face is he says that you know interest and energy are actually cyclical and he says that you actually need the rest. So, rather than just work, 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 work for 40 years, if you can inject some rest periods in between, you're actually going to work better and achieve more. So, that's where the idea in the mini retirements get back in distributed throughout your life. And also, less is not laziness and this is a big one, focusing on being productive instead of busy. Another one is the timing is never right. There's never going to be a perfect opportunity. If you wait, you know, until everything, the stars are aligned and it's a perfect time to either, you know, quit your job, start a business, uh, go for the promotion, ask for the, the extra long holiday, it's, it's never going to be the right time. That's it. This idea of someday you're going to do it, someday, it's a disease that's going to take your dreams to the grave with you if you're thinking, you know, you'll do it later. And asking for forgiveness, not permission. So, a lot of people think that they need to wait and keep asking for for permission to do things, to do something different. But no, what he's saying is you need to do it first and then ask for forgiveness later if it if it causes trouble. Yeah, especially he says if it's a, a if it's going to be a small impact with you know a potentially small negative downside and it could be reversible. Don't give someone the chance to say no. Just do it, and if it doesn't quite work out, apologize, ask for forgiveness rather than asking for the permission when they might say no. And this sixth one, man, is probably one of my favorite from the book, and it's that the idea that relative income is more important than absolute income. If you're earning one US dollar, but you're living in South America where the cost of living's cheap, you're living a lot more like a millionaire than you're living, you know, than one US dollar if you're in the US or Australia. If you if you can make an arrangement to get your US salary or your Australian salary when you're in another country like Indonesia, Lombok or South America or something, it's worth a lot more because your lifestyle output is through the roof. There was a cool story about challenging assumptions and going against the status quo and it takes us to the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City and the high jump and there were 16 guys in the final of the high jump and every single person 
up until this point was using the same technique, the straddle or the scissor technique where you run, you jump, one leg goes over, then you swing the other leg over. So your whole body and your whole center of gravity has to go over the bar. Whereas there's this one crazy dude comes along by the name of Dick Fosbury. He runs up and he jumps uh, and he doesn't swing his leg over the bar. He puts his head first over the bar and then he essentially flops his body, wriggles his body. So the center of gravity changes from his hips to his shoulders that are on the other side of the bar. So it's called the Fosbury flop now. And at the time, it was absolutely bloody wild. He was a crazy dude. No one had seen it before. The Mexicans went went wild when they saw him uh, do this and win and break world records. And by you know, if we look a couple of Olympics in the future, at the 1980 Olympics, three Olympics later, 13 of the 16 people were using the Fosbury flop method. So it's crazy to think that, okay, there was one way that everybody had done it forever. One guy comes along and he's crazy, but then not too long later, after he's challenged the status quo, everybody starts to think, actually, maybe there's a better way of doing it. So this analogy that you've already picked up is that just because everybody's living a certain way on a certain set of assumptions doesn't mean that there is another Fosbury flop. As silly as it may look and crazy as it might look, there might be an effective way, a more effective way of actually uh, living, living your life. Matt, were you a high jump man? No. No, I've, <laughs> I used to be called no twitch fiber for my <laughs> PE teacher because I, I didn't have slow twitch fibers, I didn't have endurance, and I didn't have fast twitch fibers. So I was a bit of a nothing when it came to uh, sports like that. That's so funny. When, <laughs> man, when I was in year eight, I came equal first in the national high jump comp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering why you asked me that yeah. question. I didn't even ask you a back. You just dropped it. <laughs> <in. laughs> it wasn't the Australian Nationals though, mate. It was the uh, Papua New Guinea Nationals. So <laughs> competition was a little bit lower. <laughs> <laughs> mate, what are you saying about Papua New Guinea? <laughs> no, just I was uh, the Fosbury flop was uh, was effective. Yeah. <laughs> so this new way of doing things is a really different way of living, and you might think it's unrealistic and really hard to get to because it's. It's just, it's just too good to be true almost like the, the lifestyle that he's suggesting. But what he says is it's actually lonely at the top. 99% of, the vo- 99% of people in the world are convinced they are incapable of achieving great things. So they actually aim for the mediocre. He says the fishing is best where the fewest go and the collective insecurity of the world makes it easy for people to hit home runs while everyone else is aiming for base hits. Mm. So there's actually much less competition when you're going for these bigger goals. Yeah, he says the most competition is actually you know, slightly above average. That's where everybody's aiming for. Nobody's really aiming for the top, which means there's less competition there. He uses the analogy that you know, if you walk into a club or a bar, most people are going for the sevens and the eights. Everybody's too scared to go for the tens. And because everybody's too scared to go, go for the tens, there's, uh, there's less competition, whereas the, the eights have got too many choices. So it's sort of like if, you, if you're aiming for just above average, there's a hell of a lot of people going for the same things. But if you're aiming for the top, potentially there's less competition at the top, which is a bit counterintuitive. You wouldn't expect that. But uh, I think it definitely holds true that less people are aiming so high. So you get to think, what do you actually want to do over your lifetime? And uh, for a lot of people, it might be uh, happiness, mm-hmm. which is pretty understandable. So you get to think, oh, we've got to avoid the opposite of happiness. And what's the opposite of happiness? Is it sadness? He says, no, it's not actually sadness. The opposite of happiness is boredom. And this is the thing we're looking to avoid. And then even uh, another step beyond that, something that's even more practical uh, framework to look at things, he says, excitement is actually a more practical cinnamon for happiness. So this is something a little bit more tangible that we can actually strive to go toward. Yeah, most people think I'm going to keep working until I save up X dollars and then I'm going to be able to do that one big thing. Whereas this is just it's shifting your um, approach, I guess, to rather than looking for uh, a 
a nebulous thing called happiness. We're looking for something more tangible, which is excitement. And that's where these ideas of the mini retirements and the different adventures that you're going on, these are the types of things that you should be injecting into your life. Mm, Absolutely. Boredom is the enemy, not just some abstract failure that you haven't really defined at all. Yeah. It's an interesting way to look at it because then if if you try something different, it doesn't work then it's not really a failure if you got excitement out of it. So, aiming for excitement, then you can still have a win even if it doesn't quite work out. So, that's definition, man. Defining really what you, what you want and having the whole set of availabilities open to your mind and the things that you can actually choose in your life. Now, the second step to the four-hour work week and the lifestyle of the new rich is E is for elimination. So, elimination is obviously getting rid of a lot of things that you're already doing and he says that we should stop trying to fill our day, fill every second with more and more stuff and keep trying to do more and more stuff because being busy uh, is often a way that we avoid the most important things. So, we think, oh, we're so busy, we're so busy, we're doing lots and lots and lots and what we're really doing is avoiding doing the the few key things that are actually vitally important that could have a big impact on our results. A lot of time, the most important thing is the most uncomfortable thing mm. of your day. Mm. So, there might be three phone calls, right, that's going to make your day the most effective and it might only take 30 minutes. But because you fill yourself, fill the whole day with busy stuff, you can actually avoid the uncomfortable things and actually not get around to it. Mm, exactly. And so, this is the whole thing about being effective versus being efficient. So, it's two key distinct differences and he says that what you do is infinitely more important than how you do it. So, rather than just thinking, okay, I'm going to do this as quickly and as best as I can, that would be efficiency. Instead, you need to sort of step back and think, what's the most important thing that I should be doing? There's probably a lot of busy work that you can cut out. And the most unfortunate thing, when you go into corporate and say if you, you know, you're much more efficient than, and effective than everyone else, you can get all the work done that someone else, a colleague would done doing 40 hours, you can get it done in 10 hours. But unfortunately, what your boss is going to do, you go, oh, well done for getting in 10 hours, here's another 30 hours yeah. of work and it's just going to keep filling up your time and time and time. And uh, Unfortunately, this is the case when you, where you have for most jobs. Yeah, exactly. Just because you did 40 hours of work in 10 hours doesn't mean you get the next 30 hours off. It just means you get more stuff piled up. So, he says that effectiveness is doing the things that get you closer to your goals, whereas efficiency is just doing whatever you're doing in the most economic manner possible. And there's two specific things that he says we can use in order to make ourselves more effective. The first one is the Pareto principle or probably more widely known as the the 80-20 principle. So, it's the assumption or realization and this happens in all circumstances where there'll be natural systems down to how actually your sales go to actually how your workflows and everything. So, it's the understanding that 80% of the consequences come from 20% of the causes. So, under this paradigm, you might start asking the question, uh, which 20% of sources or actions that I'm doing are going to get 80% of the results of whatever I'm, I'm working on? And then... In asking that question, you're obviously going to focus on the 20% and then you can chop out some of the other 80%. Yeah, exactly. This this crazy man, Vilfredo Pareto, he realized that you know everywhere, whether it was you know 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the people or 80% of his peas came from 20% of the plants, you need to take this uh, idea and apply it to what you're doing, thinking, you know, what are the things that you are doing that are having the biggest impact? Because as we said, there's probably a lot of little small busy tasks that aren't really achieving too much benefit. If you can drill down and find the most important key actions and focus on them, 
then you're going to be in a much better place, being much more effective. He says, being selective, doing less is the path of the productive. So this is the thing we're doing. So that was the first paradigm, the 80-20 Pareto principle. The second one is all about Parkinson's law. And this law dictates that a task will swell in perceived importance and complexity in relation to the time allocated for its completion. Mm. So it's the idea, if you've got four weeks to complete a project, it'll go into four weeks. Mm. If all of a sudden you got a deadline in three days, you'll get it done in three yeah. days. So it's just it's like a fart in a in a room. If you do a fart, it spreads and fills the whole room evenly. And Is that from the book? No, nah, that just pops <laughs> up in my head. But I think it's a it's quite a good analogy and it fits pretty well. But it does fill so the task will fill the amount of time you've allocated to it. Yeah, exactly, man. It's sort of as you say, if you've got four weeks, it's gonna take you four weeks. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you did four weeks of good work. It's probably that you added extra complexity or you procrastinated or you did other little things that didn't really add to the overall project that you probably wouldn't have done if, it, if you only had three days to do it. So combining these two, number one, you need to limit the tasks to the important to shorten the work time. That's the 80-20 principle. Do 20% of the work that are presenting 80% of the results. And number two, you need to set deadlines for the actual tasks that you're left, left with so you don't let it swell a certain amount of time in your life. And this is how where the title of the four-hour work week really comes from. Yeah, that's it. He says that, you know, whilst we, if you haven't read the book, you probably think it's about quit your job and follow your passion and work on the beach. But really what he says, the four-hour work week comes from doing 10xing your per-hour output. So not doing 40 hours a week, doing four hours a week. And this is what, you know, a lot of these time management things and getting rid of the things that don't really matter come in. So that was elimination. The third step is A for automation. And Tim Ferriss really made popular the idea of outsourcing life uh, in, from this chapter and uh, the whole idea of using virtual assistants, which we've both used um, a lot in the past and we've got one right now, Maria, what's her surname? Maria... GR. It's really hard to pronounce, but she's she's from Serbia. From Serbia, she's fantastic. We've had Daniel from Kenya in the past. The last time we recorded this uh, episode, <laughs> we had Daniel, and we were in love with him. And he was uh, he was sick. He was running your Tinder, trying to get dates for you. He was doing a lot of tasks for us. Uh, but then he um, he started doing some dodgy shit. Basically, <laughs> started spamming our website with other random pills. What and was that? Dick pills and stuff and. I don't know. Anyway, so Daniel got Daniel got the boot, <laughs> and we upgraded to Maria. But basically, like there's there's stuff out there. We used uh, Upwork. Um, there's a whole bunch of different sites where you can get um, freelancers or virtual assistants, and you can get people to do uh, small tasks. And if you think you know they're uh, in a country where they might range from four dollars to ten dollars per hour, and if you think your time, if you're getting paid. $30 to $40 per hour, if you can outsource some of those tasks, mm. you can potentially save yourself a lot of money. Like the, the time money trade-off there is certainly in your favor. Mm, absolutely. So we use it for the podcast. In my normal day-to-day job when I first started there, there was a big administrative task of filling out a whole bunch of forms, filling out a, a feedback forms and just kind of data entry kind of thing. And this would have taken me two days and then straight away being able to outsource it. So things like that, you can just send overseas and someone could do it for five bucks an hour and then um, then you can just hang out with it. No, actually, yeah. what, what tends to happen is you do another task for the boss. Yeah. <laughs> 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 depends how you want to play that one. Yeah, but yeah so it's, it's something cool I reckon is worth 
worth playing around with. And he says, Tim Ferriss says, the most important thing is rule number one is you got to be, uh, the way you delegate and explain tasks, you need to be super clear in what you want and how they should do it. Uh, and rule two is just have fun. So uh, he had a, a story from AJ Jacobs who wrote a, a longer article about this and AJ Jacobs tried to see how much could he outsource and he outsourced like arguments with his wife. He got the virtual <laughs> assistant to email her and message her on his behalf and, and things like that. So you can uh, you can play around and have a lot of fun and then eventually work out what's the most efficient or effective use of, of your virtual assistant to get a few things off your plate. So once you first start playing around with it and you know it's an actual an option um, for you to actually choose from, you can actually start every task you do it's pissing you off and it's a little bit boring to start asking yourself, could a virtual assistant do this administrative bullshitty task from overseas? And if the answer is yes, then go and hire him for, for five bucks an hour so you can start doing the things you prefer to do. Definitely, man. It's a, it's a, it's a cool one to play around with. The next uh, section of the automation section is uh, what he calls the income autopilot. So this is where the idea of the having a a business on the side or an income source on the side that doesn't take a whole lot of your time. And again, you can automate a lot of the tasks, but it's all about starting super small and risk-free in order to build up this income stream. So business books all the time talk about how you can best manage employees to be more effective and more efficient and all these kind of things. But what Ferris says is remove the human element altogether. So once you have a product that sells, it's time to design a self-correcting business architecture that runs itself. So if you've got all these business architecture and um, automations in place, you can actually remove yourself from this element. And I guess this is the whole definition of what passive income is. The idea that you've got income going into your bank account where you're not investing your time and you're getting paid while you sleep. Mm, it's a very different approach of building this um, one, you know, business without without effectively having employees as opposed to building up a, a big business with heaps of employees and eventually selling it for tens of millions of dollars. They're two very different ways to go about it. There was a cool thing, uh, a cool quote here by uh, the well-known man, Warren Bennis. Uh, Do you know Warren? <laughs> no. I don't know Warren either. Bloke <laughs> from the pub again. But, <laughs> but the, uh, he says, the factory of the future will only have two employees, a man and a dog. The man will be there to feed the dog and the dog will be there to keep the man from touching the equipment. So the, <laughs> I think true. it's pretty funny. And yeah, it's actually, good. next week we'll do a, are we doing AI? Yeah, we're Artificial doing Artificial intelligence. Yeah. So, um, yeah, AI is coming, robots coming to take over. So uh, this is all about rather than building up a big business with a lot of employees, build up an income stream that you control with very little time. And so he sort of steps us out how we should go about building a business like this, what he calls a muse. So, in Tim's business architecture, he sees himself as a police officer on the side of the road who can step in if he needs to be and he gets detailed reports from all these different outsources to ensure the cogs of this machine is actually still turning as intended and he's still getting the money flowing into his bank account. Yeah, so he's got four steps here as to, I guess, how how to, to do that. And uh, obviously, it sounds a, a lot easier than it possibly is. But step one is to pick an affordably reachable niche market. So, it says that creating demand is super hard, but filling existing demand is a lot easier. So, rather than trying to build something completely brand new and then try to tell lots of people about it to the point that they want to buy it is tough. But if there's already people out there looking for something, whether it's a product or a service, and you can fill that need and you can reach them, then that's a lot more achievable. The second step is brainstorm products. And the idea of a product is something you've got tangible so you can actually sell it and it can actually move in this virtual architecture while you sleep. The opposite of that is a service business where you're getting paid by the hour 
um, and you need to invest your time every single time for every single transaction. The product is actually scalable, meaning that you can create a business architecture that can handle 10,000 orders per week just as easily as it can handle 10 orders. So scalability is achievable by a product. So here you need to brainstorm what products you can do. And he suggests that first you need to pick two markets that you are most familiar with that have their own trade magazines with full-page advertising that cost less than $5,000. Or I guess his book was um, written in 2008, so there's probably new uh, trade magazine kind of newsletters that you can jump in there as well now. And the second thing he says you need to do is have your product between about 50 to 200 bucks In this uh, nice little Goldilocks price range, there's less units going through. You've got better customers and less questions. Like anything over 200 bucks, they're probably going to start asking questions you need to up your customer service yeah if it's too expensive then there's a lot of headaches that come with it if it's too cheap there's also a lot of headaches that come with it so he reckons that this is sort of the the perfect middle ground this 50 to 200 dollars in that you don't have to sell a whole you know you don't have to sell thousands to make it worth it and you also don't have to give such high-end um, customer service and stuff but uh, another thing that he says in regards to that service versus product if you've got ideas if you've got like a service business, you can turn that service into a product by creating an information product. So rather than say, uh, you know, if you're a podcast consultant, you help people make podcasts, rather than, you know, spending an hours of your own time directly coaching individual people on a one-on-one basis, if you turn that information into an information product, you make a course and you can sell that, it becomes a product or you write a book or anything like this. These, it's information that would normally be in a service, but you've turned it into a product which allows you to then automate those sales. And that's the beacon of hope of anyone out there who is in a service business. You might be uh, an accountant or you might be a lawyer, you might be an engineer or something. You're thinking, how the hell can I get out of this uh, pay-for-service business? But that's it, man. It's how you're thinking about how can you package this this knowledge you do in your service to make it a product, an information product, and you can turn it into a range of different things, like you said, that are saleable like online courses or books or things like that. So you need to get a product in some way, and that's step two. Yeah. So step three, he says, we've got a few options as to how we're going to do this. So step one again was we found our niche, and we're able to reach them. Step two, we're brainstorming different ideas as to what we could do for them. Step three, he says, we've got a few options. We can either resell a product. So we buy something, sell it for markup and resell it. Uh, We can license a product. So again, you're essentially taking a slice off the top or you can uh, create a product, which is sort of what we're talking about as well. And like a big one at the moment is uh, say you can buy things on Alibaba from China where it's like a... a a white label effectively and that they make the product you can create a brand where you put your own name on that product and then you can sell it obviously buy it for cheaper sell it for more expensive with your own brand on top so that's the type of thing that he's talking about Mm, and then you'd be surprised a lot of the big brands are in the world that's exactly what they do they buy uh, something from china and there might be 10 different variations under different brands of that Mm. exact same product it's just the brand name that they can actually put the mark up that, that justify the, the price they actually sell things for. Yeah, and the step four, the most important one, I think, is is mini test your product. So you, this is the exact opposite of you know thinking, oh, I've got this awesome idea. I'm going to invest tens of thousands of dollars. I'm going to buy tens of thousands of units of this, and I'm going to store them in my house and gradually send them out one by one. He says you need to mini test this on a super, super cheap and quick basis before you invest a lot of time and energy and money. So he says best test diverse. So with best, you need to look at the competition and create a more compelling offer 
on a basic one to three-page website. And something like this, man, uh, especially after you've done it the first time, it only takes about one to three hours and, you know, 100 bucks to get your website hosting and all these kind of things going. So that's best what you need to do and, and how to position it. In terms of testing, you need to test the offer that you've created in your in your mind using something like Google AdWords. Today, it'd be something like Facebook advertising, LinkedIn advertising, trade magazines, anything like that. And with that, it might take three hours and then you might test it over five days with passive observation. And then finally, either divest or invest. So the thing that you've done, it might work or it might not. And if it doesn't work, cut your losses uh, you've just wasted a week and 500 bucks. You can do it again another 10 times and sooner or later, you might actually swing. You might hit that ball and it might be a home run that actually works for you. Yeah. So, this is instead of investing tens of thousands of dollars, you might spend two to $300 in doing this test and two weeks of time. So, maybe you, you make a simple website and you say, hey, okay, I found this market. This is what I think I'm going to offer. You put a website up there and you then do some uh, cheap Google ads or Facebook ads towards your website and saying, hey, this is what I'm offering. See if people are buying it. And Tim Ferriss talks a lot about, you know, you don't actually have to have it. It can almost be like a pre-order, you know, Mm. pre-order this new product. So, you're not actually spending any money on the product. And from that one week of testing, you've got your website and you've got your offer and you're running these ads. Within that two to 300 bucks, you're going to get a bit of an idea. Is there something here? Or is it a complete failure? And then obviously, if it is a failure, you've saved yourself tens of thousands of dollars. You can cut it and move on to the next Mm. test. Or if there's a glimmer of hope, maybe see what you can do with it. Mate, we've done a bunch ourselves here. Uh, In my first year out of university as as a structural engineer, I followed this information product route and I created an information product. It's called Gradual Graduate Structural Engineer Design Tasks. If anyone wants to look it up, schoolofstructuralengineering.com. It's a bit of a stinker. Love it. Sounds great. But uh, anyway, the idea being, you know, package all this information learned from university to help graduate engineers in their first year uh, put it on Google AdWords, Facebook ads, LinkedIn, um, iStructD, which is the institution magazine and all that. Spent maybe a grand, maybe three weeks and put it out there. Big flop. <laughs> <laughs> Not the end of the world because as you said, man, if you just keep swinging, um, eventually you try the next thing. I think maybe two or three swings after that, we started this podcast. So sooner, mm. sooner or later, if you keep swinging, something might actually come 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 to fruition. Yeah, exactly. I did a, a thing called the Sock Club. I don't think you'll find it anywhere because it's it's well and truly defunct. Uh, but it was we got some sample socks uh, from China, pretty cheap um, in terms of like you know cool designs for socks, and we made a, a simple website uh, and. We did some Facebook ads and we also like did some flyers and did a um, paid some uni kids to walk around the city and hand out flyers to, to businessmen. And the idea was like a, a monthly sock, sock subscription. So, 10 bucks a month and you get two pairs of new socks delivered to your door or something along those lines. And uh, we actually had two people who signed up, paid, and uh, but for the amount and for the the trouble of, you know, there was a minimum order of how many socks you had to buy. We thought, no, nah, this is not not worth it. So, we cut our losses. We had, you know, 10 sample socks. We sent them to the two guys and said, here's five socks each. Thanks for signing up, but we're going to cancel it. Um, so, it was a good test and it was I was glad that we didn't buy 10,000 pairs of socks. Mm, that's what it comes down to. So, step three was for automation. Step four is L is for liberation. And this is for a lot of the people who don't necessarily want to go down that path of making a product, you can actually live this new rich lifestyle working just your traditional corporate job, your nine to five job. You can from that 
you can actually step into this new rich lifestyle. Yeah, he says he actually said at the start in the intro that you should read it in order, D-E-A-L. If you're doing a business, you do automation first and then liberation. If you're an employee, you do this liberation first and then look towards the, the automation income. So this liberation is effectively removing yourself from some of your, the obligations, the things that you have to do and increasing your options and increasing your freedom. Because as we said earlier, if you are in the office and you have to be there, if you get that effective and efficient applying the rules of Parkinson's law and the 80-20 Pareto principle and you can actually get your work done in 10 hours, if you're in the office, they're going to load you up back up. So, we actually need to liberate ourselves from the office so you're doing the exact same output for the company you're employed by, but then you're giving that 30 hours to yourself to do what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. If you if you think if you can achieve a full day's work in two hours, you can't just go to the office for two hours and leave. But if you can achieve a full day's work, if you do two hours of work and the boss is happy that you've done a full day's work, then obviously there's a, a few extra spare hours up your sleeve where you've got that more freedom and more options. So there is a five-step process actually for liberation for employees. And one of the big keys for cutting the leash, you need to get into this paradigm of asking for forgiveness instead of permission. You can't be really weak-minded in this. You need to be very assertive in how you really apply yourself to actually achieve this, this five-step process. Yeah, and there's some good power moves involved here, some good Machiavelli in oh, terms yeah. of the way you do it. You don't just, you, this is not about just quit your job straight away and it's also not about going to your boss and say, hey, I'm not going to come in anymore. I'm going to work from home. It's a, it's a gradual build-up uh, of of power, getting the power in your court. 100%. And step one is increasing investment, which is a great idea for multiple reasons, not just liberation. And it's the idea you need to get the company to invest in you as much as possible so the loss is greater if you quit. Mm. If your company invests you in a, in a 20 grand leadership course or something like that, They've invested a lot. They don't want to get rid of you. So, you've probably got more leverage for a pay rise. You've got more leverage to actually leave the office. you just got more leverage in general if they've invested themselves in you. Exactly. If you're a brand new and you're trying to pull some of these moves, it's probably not going to work. But if you've been at the company for a couple of years and they've, you've done a few training courses and you've maybe got a promotion and you're a really good worker, they don't want to lose you. So, you're really increasing your value to them. The second step is to prove increased uh, off-site output. So, say, and the, what he says here is what you need to do is on two days in a row in the middle of a week, so not a Monday, not a Friday, take, take two sickies. So, he says on a, on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, take, take two sickies in a row. And you don't just go and chill. He says you need to actually do a hell of a lot of work. So, what you do is on those two sickies, do some kind of sick project or an awesome amount of work. So, when you get back on Thursday, you say, oh, man, I was, I was crook, but because I was at home... I was actually able to do a hell of a lot more work, you know, without the distractions, without the commute, without the interruptions. It was actually great to work from home. So that's like the the first foot in the door, I guess, of proving that you can work effectively and efficiently when you're not at work. Make sure you CC the boss in all those emails you're, you're pumping out, that's for sure. And step three is you need for it to prepare the quantifiable business benefit. So you need to quantify how much you're actually getting done when you're off the site. You're not getting interrupted by all the people at work tapping on your shoulder all day because you can actually stay at home and focus on what task is uh, the most important. Yeah. And then step four is, importantly here, is propose a revocable trial period. And so the way you frame this request is very important. It's It's got to be revocable. It's got to be a, a short-term trial period. So you say 
to you, boss. Hey, it's been so great. The last couple of times I've been crooked home, I've been able to get a lot of work done and I've proven that this is how much extra work I can get done. How about as you know, as a, a limited time trial, we try it for, for one day a week, I work from home. And so that's a, the important bit there that the boss has got the power to cancel it at any time and it's just a trial period for the next couple of months or something like that. And step five is expand the remote time. So go overseas for a couple of weeks when you get to the, the, the time to be able to do the remote work. Make sure you're doing a good job mm. and proving to your boss that you're not dropping the ball. So there's no risk for them. They understand that, as you said, man, it's all revocable. And then as time goes on, you actually expand the amount of time you're overseas because you're liberated from the office, getting the task done, using the strategies we said. Mm. Over time, we built it up. Obviously, this is not an overnight thing. This is a you know six to 12-month process. We're gradually ratcheting it up over time. But if you can do all these things, you can prove that working from home, you can do it effectively. You can prove that if you go away for two-week holiday, you're still going to get your work done. You can gradually ratchet up to the point where perhaps you are only working one day a fortnight in the actual office or perhaps it's you know every month you take two weeks off and you can do these things. So, it's a gradual build-up over time. And then, unfortunately, though, for some people, and there'll be a lot of people listening, uh, your job is actually beyond repair and it's time to actually kill and fire your job. Yeah, there's a cool quote. He said, most people aren't lucky enough to get fired in that <laughs> sometimes that if you're, if you're just good enough uh, and you stick at the job, you're not going to get fired, but you are going to die this slow, gradual, spiritual death over 30 to 40 years of tolerating the mediocre. Oh, it is really, isn't it? It is uh, countless people dying a slow spiritual death, man. It's uh, obvious when you look around, right? And he says, just because you're embarrassed to admit that you're living the consequences of decisions made 5, 10, 20 years ago, you know, the, the, the path that you chose in your 20s or teens or whatever, it shouldn't stop you from making good decisions now. So, if you let pride stop you, from 5, 10 or 20 years now, you're going to be pissed off and be dying the same uh, slow spiritual death for the exact same reasons. Yeah, exactly. If you're not taking some of the advice here in terms of increasing the excitement in your life and uh, decreasing the um, entrapment, I guess, you feel around your job, then you're going to be in the same position. So, at the moment, you need to either, if you're in a spot where you can start to implement some of these ideas, start doing it, or if it's going to be impossible where you currently are, perhaps rip the band-aid off and quit the job and either and find a new job that is going to allow you to do some of these things. And once you rip that band-aid off, it's actually going to be less painful than you think. He says there's actually two massive types of mistakes that people make. The first is of ambition, and this is the decision to act and make mistakes with incomplete information. This is good. That's good. That's a good mistake to make. A bad mistake is mistakes of sloth, that you refuse to change a very bad situation out of fear. Mm, that's a bad mistake to make. Because some people, when it's Monday morning, they wake up to an alarm clock of this buzzing alarm, and they're thinking, fuck, do I have to do this for another 40 to 50 years? Yeah, that's not a good spot to be in. So, that's sort of the DEAL of it all. And this is, we just want to cap it off with uh, a few things that he has of the book in terms of what he calls the power of pessimism. So, obviously, goal setting is what people talk about and you can set good goals to, you know, say, oh, I want to set a goal to build an online business that makes $1,000 a month or you set a goal to uh, work from home one day a week. These are good but what um, Tim Ferriss says is more powerful is actually fear setting rather than goal setting. So, build up how something is so negative and so bad that it forces you to run away from it. Because this point in the book, if you want to be someone who's 
moving into the lifestyle of the new rich. That's exactly what it's going to be. You're doing something that it's option C that no one else, none of your mates in most cases are really living this way. So you're taking this action all of a sudden to do the Fosbury flop when everyone else mm. is doing it the, the other different way. And it is scary, man. Because when you choose to do the Fosbury flop, you're moving into really uncertain territories when you're doing things like this. So most people choose the mundane, unhappy way of life over the uncertainty um, inherent in the in the new riches approach to life. And one good way to, I guess, start to become a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty is what he calls comfort challenges, which he's got littered throughout the book in that doing these small things that feel really scary but you can do them and overcome them will obviously build up until you do some of these bigger, scarier things. So, he says these small comfort challenges can help you get outside your comfort zone and do something that is a little bit uncertain and then you'll quickly realize that, look, the world didn't end by doing something uncomfortable and uncertain. So, the only way you want to get to where you want to be is to change who you are. So, you've got a a big a goal that requires a bigger person and a grown person to get it, then you actually need to become that person and comfort challenges are the road to doing that. So, he's got some arbitrary comfort challenges in the book. Like he suggests next time you're in a cafe, just <laughs> just lie down, Yeah, in, which I've done before yeah. <laughs> after I first read this. Or if, you, um, if you're, you're buying coffee, ask, ask for 10% off. Mm. It's super uncomfortable because nobody does it. It's a weird thing to ask. Mm. Or we've both done stand-up comedy and mm. things like that. So, before, it's the most painful thing in the world, but you do grow from it because it's something difficult and extremely uncomfortable and does help when you have to deal with uncertainty at later times. So, your life is going to be long. Nine to five, your whole working life, another 40 to 50 years is a long-ass time if this rescue doesn't come. So, you actually got to go out there and make an action and it's defining the thing you're fearful of which is going to help you. For Tim Ferriss, back when he made this jump and he is who he is today, he said the worst-case scenario if he made that jump was a six but the upside potential was a nine or ten. If you actually define what the worst-case scenario is of you taking an action based on what you've read from this book, you'll probably find the worst-case scenario isn't that bad but the upside potential is absolutely huge. If this is the first time you've considered the jump to the mobile lifestyle of adventure that he's proposing, he envies you. Making the jump is like upgrading your role from passenger to pilot. 